Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Margaret Weidekamp will join us to discuss space craze. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science Show. Well, Americans had a fascination with spaceflight. Joining us today to discuss this is Dr. Margaret Weidekamp. Dr. Weidekamp is chair of the Space History Department at Smithsonian's National Air and Space Museum, where she curates the social and cultural history of spaceflight collection, which encompasses some 5,000 pieces of space memorabilia and science fiction objects. She is the author of numerous academic and popular works on the subject, including Right Stuff, Wrong Sex, America's First Women in Space Program. And she has penned the new book, Space Craze. America's Enduring Fascination with Real and Imagined Spaceflight. Dr. Weidekamp, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Well, it is certainly our pleasure, certainly a great book you put together here, Space Craze, where you look at the history of America's fascination with real and, and imagined spaceflight. I'm curious why you decided to put the book together. So in many ways, this is the book that I wish somebody else had written. When I became the curator for the collection at the National Air and Space Museum that deals with our space science fiction objects, as well as our memorabilia of the actual space program. So this is the social and cultural dimensions of spaceflight collection. Really what I was looking at is I saw so many connections between the way that spaceflight had been imagined and the way that spaceflight had been remembered and commemorated. And as I started to dig into that, I really got interested in the ways that those things were rooted in the cultural context of the time. And so this is my attempt to bring readers through with me as a bit of a behind-the-scenes tour of the collection and then through the history as I've come to see it. It starts off with a look at the golden age of science fiction, looking at issues and the dreams that were surrounding spaceflight and how that began to spur the imagination. How do you think our initial fascination with spaceflight began to emerge? So I really start the book with Buck Rogers and Flash Gordon. Buck Rogers started as a comic strip, as a short story that inspired a comic strip in the late 1920s and became a radio program and then a series of movie serials in the 1930s. And when I was looking at that, I really saw what many other scholars have seen, which is the connections between the way that that story was told and American Westerns. So the kind of heroic male lead with a woman who is both sidekick and love interest, a kind of avuncular hero being advised, having the advice of that kind of older figure, a young sidekick. And looking at the ways that that crew, which is in some ways really modeled on what we would have seen in Westerns, gets on a named spaceship and heads off at the point of a gun for adventures in space-based places. And what I saw with that is really an archetype, right? The Buck Rogers archetype sets a form for American space science fiction that has been much imitated, very often played against, 
as well as played with, exported and reflected back to ourselves. But it has this enduring power because in some ways of its Americanness. And I wanted to talk about Americanness not as some stand-in for universality, but because it's so culturally rooted in these stories that we tell ourselves about who we think we are as a nation of explorers and why that has been such a powerful story to tell in a space context as well. So I looked really at what is it about Buck Rogers and Flash Gordon, which was set up explicitly to imitate the very successful and financially successful Buck Rogers. And why do those set up patterns that then we still see in Star Trek and Star Wars in franchises that we're following to this day? As you point out, a reflection of that American ethos, the frontier, and where we then ran out of the frontier by running into the Pacific, now we explore space with the same mindset. Very much so, and I think it also really dovetails with the way that those conversations about who should be doing the exploring, who can be doing the exploring, are very racialized. They're very gendered, and we see that then explicitly played with in science fiction. Science fiction is such a powerful genre because we see it in some ways as predictive, as future-facing, as an idea of what the future could be. It is, and it is also very much a conversation about the present in which it is being built. And I think that the ways that those stories show us the culture that was undergirding those times is important not only for how we've imagined what it might be like to go into space, but also that was the culture that was supporting actual space exploration in the moment. In some ways, as you put it, constraining what imagination should be like. Who would be as the ones doing the exploring? If you look at the beginnings of the U.S. human spaceflight program, the Mercury astronauts, the first seven astronauts selected by NASA and announced in April of 1959, this is an extraordinary group of gentlemen, very talented, who had gotten to the top of a very exclusive pyramid as military-trained jet test pilots. And yet it was such an homogenous group that one of the pictures I include in the book is one where they had literally lined up in alphabetical order so that the reporters would get the caption right for which gentleman was which. When we looked at that in the 50s, if we look at that with those eyes, that was seen as a visible sign of how exclusive and talented and exceptional these gentlemen were. By the 1970s and on, that's no longer the reflection of the face of America that NASA wants to be sending into space. And if we look at something like Artemis now, where NASA is explicitly talking about the next people to set foot on the moon will include the first woman, will include the first person of color, we see the ways that those kind of cultural underpinnings are changing and evolving in terms of how we think about who can be the explorer, who should be the explorer. As early as the beginnings of the space program, they were part of some of the training, but they just were not selected to the point where they made that final cut. There were women who were tested early, and that is my first book, Right Stuff, Wrong Sex, not really seriously considered. NASA never had an explicit gender determination on their definition of who would be an astronaut, but it was baked into all of the requirements that underlay what it meant to be an astronaut. That military jet test training that we just talked about was something that was only available to men and only available 
uh, rather exclusively. Uh, there were significant racial restrictions in practice on how that was allowed and who was able to get to that level. And then we see by the 1970s this wonderful interplay that I talk about in Space Craze between the visions of who could be the explorer that had begun to be shaped by path-breaking programs like Star Trek, which had men and women of different races going into space together. And then NASA actually uses that example when they want to recruit the first women and people of color to be astronaut candidates in the 1978 class. They actually hired Michelle Nichols, who was the actress who played Lieutenant Uhura on the original Star Trek. And she did a public relations campaign where she was recruiting astronaut candidates for the real space program. And that's really part of, I think, the power of when you put the imagined spaceflight right next to these stories of actual spaceflight, there are so many connections, uh, conversations happening between those that it really, the more I was writing this book, the more I thought it was not me trying to put them next to each other. They were organically interacting. The programs of the time, the science fiction programs of the time, certainly inspire the next generation of scientists, technicians to want to go into space. But in a way, it also reflects the social cultural milieu at the time. And so one might expect that the two would go hand in hand. Yes. And I think it's not because television writers or movie writers or engineers who are putting things together are have some sort of magic mirror that they hold up to culture and reflect it. It's because they are deeply a part of that culture in everything that they are doing. And so you see folks who are thinking about what could be possible and then playing off of what else is going on at the time. And I definitely think when you look at the history of who's been creating these fictional visions, they're often big fans of the actual efforts and are following the latest of what's being designed at the big aerospace manufacturers. And likewise, if you talk to folks who work in the aerospace world, many of them are science fiction fans because it's a wonderful vision of the kind of work that they would like to be doing. So that interplay between how we imagine and how we execute in spaceflight, I think, is something that is very powerful and that takes its power out of that ability to change, to shift, to adjust in its basic form from where it has started into something that fits with its time. Is there anything particularly surprising to you in terms of how the two co-evolved and the society and times they were placed? I think it's probably not surprising that the fiction is often leading what's possible. So you end up with a show like Star Trek, which started in 1966 in that fall season on NBC and had men and women of different races working together something that really was significant in a moment when the civil rights movement in the United States is still really in the full flower of the 1950s and 1960s. The second wave of the women's movement was only just getting organized. The National Organization for Women is founded in 1966, that same year. And so I think you see these visions pushing a bit ahead of what is possible in terms of human spaceflight, but also that playing back and forth. And I often was looking at objects as a way to begin to tell the story. So I open every chapter with an artifact and my consideration of it, because I think curators are often pictured as the folks with all the answers. Certainly on television, they wander in and quote statistics and things off the tops of their heads. And in real life, curators 
come to things and most often are the question askers. They have many more questions. And I hope that giving people some glimpse into what it means to do that kind of historical work with objects, that it's not just a finished exhibit, but that it's a whole process of inquiry and uh, questioning and trying to figure out what's going on so that we can tell that story more clearly. That really often starts with a lot of questions sitting in front of the actual objects. And that is part of what I tried to do with the book is give people a glimpse into that process. It helps to ground the history and seeing the object and being able to visualize what produced that object. Very often when we're looking at things, that tend, those stories tend to be told either through the history of how the object was produced, who was the manufacturer, how was it designed, how was it put together. And the flip side of that is also trying to include the story of how was it used? What did it mean for people to own or purchase or be gifted this object to be working with it and playing with it? And especially with toys, which is one of the really rich sets of pieces that I get to have in the collection and therefore have in the book. Toys are things that if you think about yourself as a child, that you were playing with according to kind of scripts that you might have seen out in the world, but also playing against the scripts that you might have seen out in the world. And so toys become a particularly rich place for a cultural historian to really get to dig into the ways that characters were envisioned, whether that's a human being or an alien man or a woman of what different race was being depicted. And then think about the ways that that toy in itself shaped how it guided the play, even as children were always free to play against type. The support for uh, spaceflight over time has ebbed and flowed. There have been various low points in the history of American uh, spaceflight and resurgences. How do you think uh, that is also reflected in the, the fiction? It has very not been constant over time, but it has been persistent and resurgent. And that's part of what really fascinated me was the ways that there are dips in Americans' enthusiasm about spaceflight, and there are disjunctions in that enthusiasm. So if you look at public opinion polls, which tended to connect spaceflight in reality with the cost of spaceflight, we tend to reflect back and assume that spaceflight was always immensely popular, say, especially in the 1960s around the moon landings. And what we find when we look at the public opinion polls is that it was never much more than 40% was about the high point of the approval rating. That's often because it got connected to questions about the cost and the assumption about cost was always often the reverse of that. Much higher, The assumption was that it was much higher, much more costly than it actually was. And what fascinated me was then looking at the ways that I think there's a third factor, which is this kind of cultural fascination. If it doesn't cost anything and it um, is not using real resources, if it's just something we like, then I think there is a persistent cultural fascination with spaceflight, even if it doesn't always translate into kind of political approval that would attach an economic figure to it. And But even that ebbs and flows. And I think comes back because it is a cultural rooted form that is deeply in touch with these stories about exploration and national identity that are really core to American identity in some fundamental ways. What do you think about spaceflight now? I mean, your book ends with private spaceflight, big billionaires going off into space. What do you think that reflects current society and where our fiction also lands on, on this issue? 
always the ability to take this book all the way through 2021, as much as I had worked on trying to finish it well before that, really allowed the full arc to be completed because that is the year that you see SpaceX being able to launch human beings from American soil for the first time since the end of the shuttle program in 2011. It was the beginnings of the flights from Virgin Galactic, from Blue Origin, And in many ways, that's a kind of fulfillment of this dream that we talk about throughout the book of the excitement about the idea that spaceflight might become more inclusive, more democratic. I think that we, you know, small d democratic, more including more people. And I think that what you see with that is an excitement that in some ways echoes the kinds of excitement that we had seen before which is excitement, but also nervousness about how much it costs and excitement, but also discomfort with how exclusive it could be. I think if what we're seeing with the beginnings of commercial space travel in terms of a tourism purpose is perhaps more akin to what you would have seen in airlines when those were things that those kinds of trips were only really available to business moguls, uh, movie stars, someone with that very uh, high ability to take advantage of that kind of transportation. So it's certainly an exciting time to be following the ways that spaceflight has now become in some ways really truly routine in terms of our use of satellites and our living in a space-enabled world as the same time that we're seeing the potential of this new industry of space tourism in terms of suborbital and perhaps even eventually Uh, more sustained orbital tourism coming to real fruition. Well, certainly is exciting times ahead. Unfortunately, we were running slightly out of time. I'm curious, maybe as a final word, people picking up the book, what would you like them to take home regarding the history of America's fascination with both real and imagined spaceflight? I would love it if readers get a chance to go on this journey with me through the collection and through the history in the 20th century, and then also start looking around in their world and seeing the places where they might have a pin or a patch or a t-shirt or something in their own collection or might themselves be a fan of space science fiction or participate in cosplay or conventions or just watching a show or tweeting about it and see the ways that they are a part of this story as well. We were just talking with Dr. Margaret Weidekamp. Her new book, Space Craze, America's Enduring Fascination with Real and Imagined Spaceflight. Dr. Weidekamp, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thank you. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.